Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the 1930 Rule 5 draft, the Brooklyn Dodgers selected a journeyman pitcher, a 31-year-old right-hander named Clyde Day, also called P. Ridge Day, for the town in Arkansas where he was brought up. P. Ridge is right on the Missouri border, and its claim to fame, other than the screwballin' P. Ridge himself, was that in 1862... It was the site of a Civil War battle and an important one. 10,000 Union troops faced off against 16,000 Confederates who were intent on taking back Missouri. The Union had driven the Confederacy out of Missouri, sent them fleeing south, and the Confederates were determined to come back. Well, despite a fairly large numerical advantage, they didn't succeed in doing that. And in fact, their attack was not only repulsed, but they were driven into retreat. And yet, it was one of those frustratingly incomplete Union victories. The Boys in Blue failed to close. This happened later, too, at Gettysburg, where the Union failed to pursue the retreating Robert E. Lee, but for better reasons, mainly that they were fought out. But in this instance, they simply misplaced the retreating Confederates To oversimplify, one of the Union generals thought the Confederate forces had retreated right, when instead they retreated left and chased in the wrong directions, and so they plumb got away. The reason that I bring all of this up is that, in many respects, Pea Ridge Day, like the Battle of Pea Ridge that was his namesake, was frustratingly incomplete. Three teams gave him major league trials, the St. Louis Cardinals in 1924 and 25 the Reds in 1926, and then finally the Dodgers in 31. And insofar as the bottom line results go, he was ineffective. But in his Dodgers stint, at least, well, it's hard to tell. He had a 4.55 ERA in 57.1 innings, not particularly good, even for that high offense time, and he gave up 75 hits, which is a ton. Now, what I don't know is whether that was the result of the fact that his screwball was just very hittable, or that the Dodgers had an infamously bad defense. He didn't walk a lot of batters, and he struck out about 5 per 9, which is way high for the time. Thus, on a fielding independent basis, he looks pretty good, but the Dodgers didn't think so, and they traded him away. They traded him to the Minneapolis Millers of the American Association to get former Giants first baseman George High Pockets Kelly, who was all washed up. I mean, High Pockets Kelly was kind of washed up even when he was in his prime, and he's in the Hall of Fame just because, well, Frankie Frisch liked him. But nevertheless, that's what they chose to do. But it wasn't just a desire to get George Kelly on their team, and it wasn't just the fact that they felt, or realistically they saw, that P. Ridge hadn't pitched well. It was that P. Ridge was kind of annoying. He drank, and so discipline might have been an issue, although that was pretty typical in those days. No, it wasn't that. It was that he had a thing for hog calling. And if you think that 
batters get upset when a pitcher shows them up by being too demonstrative on the mound after getting a big out? Well, imagine how they felt if, after a strikeout, the pitcher reared back and went, Suey, picky, 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 suey. I dare to guess you might find that a little bit annoying, but here's a more important question. How would you feel if you were his manager? Maybe you're not being shown up directly. Maybe you're just embarrassed to be in the presence of that. Or maybe you just get damned sick of it. P. Ridge struck out 30 batters that year, so even if he only gave that hog call half the time, that was still 15 occasions when the Dodgers manager, Wilbert Robinson, Uncle Robbie, had to listen to that, and what must have been more trying from a certain perspective is that the fans started to pick up on it, and say you had a big crowd for the Dodgers in those days. Ebbets Field was a small park, and it was the Great Depression, so they weren't totally packing them in, but maybe you had 20,000 and P. Ridge strikes out a batter, and now all of them in unison are making that noise. And here's the thing, 15 times is probably a bit on the low side, because according to all reports, he did not restrict the activity to when he was on the mound, but in fact, at the request of the league, kept it eventually to when he was in the dugout and somebody else did something that he approved of. So say Babe Herman hit a triple or doubled into a double play as he famously did around that time. Well, then you'd hear P. Ridge calling his porkers home. You can imagine that that might be trying after a certain amount of time. And in fact, Uncle Robbie, who was kind of a goofy guy himself on occasion, finally put an end to it. He told Day to cease and desist, saying, A man has no right to be sillier than God intended him to be. I don't want to overstate the profundity or potential profundity of what Uncle Robbie told P. Ridge, but I've often contemplated exactly what the inflection point is on being sillier than God intended you to be. I'm not particularly religious, but I'm familiar enough with the concepts. And you get into all kinds of weird areas about predetermination and free will because we can only be as silly as God intended us to be. And at no point can we be sillier than God intended us to be unless you believe that everything is a test and there's a separate rule of silliness and we are always bumping up against that barrier and we can violate it at will, but therefore we've failed the test and we'll be going to perdition, doomed eternally to suffer the torments of hell, not because we were evil or mean or cruel or sinful, but because we were too silly. But I don't think that that's the case, and I doubt Uncle Robbie thought about it that deeply. I think he was using God in place of a series of other words or concepts by which he might have meant that we earn our degree of silliness by our degree of accomplishment or our degree of seriousness in other areas, and that P. Ridge was a distraction more than he was an aid to the Dodgers in what the Dodgers were trying to do, which was making a desultory effort to win. Or maybe it wasn't as negative or as shaming as all that, but that Uncle Robbie meant to say something constructive that meant something like this, that if our accomplishments do not match our level of silliness, that we risk undermining our own dignity to a fatal degree. It's not humor, it's just a travesty of the self. 
After the Dodgers dealt P. Ridge away, things did not go well for him. He was restricted to the minor leagues, and he developed bone chips in his arm. And whereas that's a malady that pitchers can have dealt with fairly easily today, it's perhaps not routine, but it's also not the same degree of career risk as, say, tearing your ulnar collateral ligament. But in those days, he couldn't get it treated. He tried, but the treatments were not effective. Pitching for the Millers in 32, he allowed almost eight runs a game, 7.51. The numbers, and I've consulted a few sources, don't seem to exist for runs and earned runs, but he allowed 121 in 145 innings. And then the following season, pitching for the old International League version of the Orioles, he only got into six games before he was released. According to Day's Sabre biography by Brian McKenna, which I rely on here. Day was distraught at the prospect of ending his pitching career. He invested something like $10,000 in a surgical treatment, which was unusual for the day. And as I said before, it didn't work. In the off-season, Day owned a gas station and raised and sold strawberries. I don't think that means he had a strawberry farm. I think it more likely had a strawberry patch. So he was by no means set. $10,000 was a great deal of money in the early 1930s, in the Depression. And I don't mock it. What I marvel at is the degree to which he clung to the remains of his career. He was not a huge success. He was not a major league pitcher. And sure, he might have had a few more years in the minor leagues, but he was never the most effective pitcher down there either. He was popular but not for the right reasons. When he first went up to the Dodgers, the Sporting News wrote, Day has been the biggest drawing card in the American Association. He has been an object of ridicule in all parks except the one in Kansas City. One manager last season tried to have T.J. Hickey, the league president, put a stop to Day's yelling, but the American Association boss couldn't find anything in the rules to prevent noise as long as the player did not become abusive. And then the Sporting News said something which was prescient. It said, It may be that Wilbert Robinson will not like so much noise in the afternoons when he is trying to think and will ask P. Ridge to keep quiet. And that's exactly what happened. And that is the career to which P. Ridge attached so much importance that he vented what seems to have been a significant amount of savings for the time. On a cost-benefit basis, it's madness. On an emotional basis, we can all understand it completely. In the spring of 1934, with his wife quite pregnant on the verge of delivery, P. Ridge got the San Francisco Seals to extend an invitation to spring training or to a trial, I'm not sure which, and he headed west. He stopped off in Kansas City to see a friend complaining of memory lapses, and the friend took him to see a doctor. The doctor suggested he rest up a bit before traveling on, and he went back to the friend's apartment, where, in the presence of the friend, he pulled out a hunting knife and cut his own throat. P. Ridge died there, in that apartment, about 90 days short of his 35th birthday. And what I wonder is, if, in addition to having been despondent and worried about the future, in addition to most likely being some level of intoxicated, if he looked back over things and thought back on Uncle Robbie's words, 
A man has no right to be sillier than God intended him to be, and realized, in the final analysis, that he agreed with him. You know, at that point, Uncle Robbie was 70 years old, and he only had a few months to live himself. This huge, fat old man who had been a huge, fat young man on the great Baltimore teams of the early National League, the Ned Hamlin managed teams that had Wee Willie Keeler and John McGraw and Dan Bruthers and so many other great players. And he'd won a couple of pennants as a manager too and some more as a pitching coach with the Giants before that. Well, in August 1934, he slipped and fell in the bathtub, fractured his skull, broke his arm, and he'd had a stroke, and it's not clear to me if the stroke caused him to slip and fall or the slip and fall and the resulting blow to the head caused the stroke, but either way, he was done for. But he lingered for a while, and he was conscious and apparently calm. And as the doctors or whatever passed for paramedics back in that day were working him over, he said, Don't worry about it, fellas. I'm an old Oriole. I'm too tough to die. And you know, that was silly too. But Uncle Robbie had been an old Oriole. He could lay claim to that. So I guess it was just the right amount of silliness. Maybe not the amount of silliness God intended him to have, but the amount of silliness he had earned. I'm Stephen Goldman, and this is The Infinite Inning. found Bertram naked on the roof. The driving rain barely obscured him, a thin and ineffectual curtain that stabbed and bit. What are you doing up there, Bert? Come back inside. It's following me again. The demon, Renthelgazar. That again? It's in your head, Bert. It's in your head. No, he's real. You know he's real. Oh, oh, okay. Look, let's say he is real. If he is, if you're so afraid, this is a hell of a way to hide from him. You're out in the open, totally exposed. No, I'm not hiding anymore. I want him to see me. I want him to come and get me. Couldn't he see you inside, Bert, where it's dry? No, if damnation be my fate, if the demon's curse is upon me, I won't run. We'll have this over one way or another. Come, Runthelgazar, come and face me. They waited half an hour, Bertram shivering pitifully. He's not coming, is he? No, he's not. I love him so much. I know you do, Bert. I know. Come inside. I'll warm you up in front of episode 68. Welcome back to the show. That rain's kind of soothing. Maybe I should just keep it going the whole time. This week, I am joined by one of my regular conversational co-jugglers, David Roth. David's part of the rotation, but you might have noticed he hasn't been back since late May. That wasn't intentional. I've just been 
varying up the list, and there were a couple of schedule misalignments where my window didn't fit his window, and so on, and as much as I want to have the regular three tenors on, I think it keeps them fresh and me fresh if we don't adhere to a rigid schedule, but do it when it feels good to do. That's true of so many things. This is, after all, a podcast and not one of those odd pacts where you ritualistically and mechanically make love 365 days a year in an effort to rekindle some intimacy that you lost. I've seen some people claim that it works, but then some things will work for some people some of the time, and other things won't work for other people all of the time, and I've gotten lost in this Abraham Lincoln paraphrase, so I'm just going to quit and say that I'm certain that the one thing that it does is rekindle chafing, and you don't want your baseball podcast to do that. Enough said. David and I had a conversation that took an esoteric turn or two before settling down to the baseballness of the world, talking some about the Mets, as we often do, and also pitchers who suffer from Steve Blast disease, which we came to be focused on due to David writing about Rick Ankeel mooting about a possible comeback, which I think we both agreed would be kind of a moving thing, given the way that he had to stop pitching, or the reasons that he had to stop pitching to begin with. And then we also do, I think, fair warning, delve into a little bit of politics, but it really is in service of some baseball analogies and vice versa, as I've said over and over again through the course of this podcast, that being smart about baseball can focus your mind on other things and vice versa, and hopefully we demonstrated that a couple of times. So I hope you enjoy that, but before David comes on, I did want to mention that early in our discussion, I brought up, in a kind of sour way, (laughs) reviews at iTunes. And if you haven't left one yet, we haven't had a new one since June, and I would very much like to see them continue to pile up. I'm not asking you to be dishonest, but of course, positive reviews are more helpful than negative ones in the grand scheme of things. So if you do receive the podcast via iTunes, which I guess the majority of people still do, although there are many other options, including just getting it directly on the web. But if you are one that has an iTunes account and would be inclined to leave a review, I would greatly appreciate it if you do that. And now, having gotten that bit of business out of the way, there is a discussion I've been putting off for a couple of weeks now that relates to a discussion that Mary Craig and I had a few weeks back about the Astros trading for domestic violence case Roberto Osuna and then supplying a great many disingenuous kinds of explanations and excuses for why they did so. And we also talked quite a bit about Luke Heimlich, the amateur pitcher who was not drafted because he had, as a teenager, pled guilty to molesting his six-year-old niece. And at that time, the general manager of the Royals had kicked around, signing him in kind of a, hey, let's run up a trial balloon kind of way, which doesn't seem to have gone anywhere, because we subsequently had news that Heimlich signed with the Lamigo Monkeys of the Chinese Professional Baseball League in Taiwan, a signing that was quickly reversed by the league, citing his status as a convicted criminal. This also came up with Cliff in the following episode. I didn't plan it either time exactly, it just kind of happened. And I believe in both episodes, the painful incongruity of baseball's punishments in these instances, that Osuna 
is eligible for the postseason and a PED's case like Robinson Cano is not has the opposite of the intended effect. Cano has little or no value to a contender now because sure, he could come back from his suspension as in fact he just did and hit 400 with power down the stretch. That'll help you get to the postseason. But there's a cost because whoever you pull out of the lineup to let him do that hitting has to replace him in the postseason. And that guy has spent six weeks on the bench. So basically you're going to play in October with a very different team as indeed the Mariners will if they end up getting there. Conversely, as I pointed out in both episodes, Osuna has been rendered more attractive because being unwelcome to whatever extent on his previous team, the Blue Jays, he was being marketed at a discount and being eligible for the postseason. There is no reason that a team would not want to acquire him. Although the Astros have pretty much completely stopped winning since he arrived there. I don't think that has to do with him and more that they have so many injuries at the moment. Still, none of the conversational partners involved in this discussion, whether me or Mary or Cliff in those individual episodes, pretended that this is easy. We all have an opinion on what we do and don't want to see out of baseball or what kind of players we don't want to see on the field. But at the same time, this conflicts with notions of crime and punishment, the way we handle it in this country, that you serve your debt and it's over. Well, there are some things like being a sex offender or being an abuser of women that we don't want to let go so easily. And I don't think anyone is pretending that's easy. I don't think anyone wants to pretend that they themselves are blameless enough to throw the first stone or that they want to throw stones at all, that they want to be the ones who are leading the mob that tars and feathers this particular person and runs them out of town. On that subject, after those two discussions... A listener, Len, posted on the Facebook group this, which I will read to you now. He wrote, It's hard to argue with anything said regarding Osuna and Cano, but to compare the two is apples and oranges. Assault is a crime punishable by society, and if anyone is worthy of judging a crime against society, it is a public jury of peers. PEDs are a crime against baseball, and is therefore a baseball problem. Baseball is not responsible for handing out jail time as juries are not responsible for PED infractions in baseball. That PEDs are punished more harshly than assault makes perfect sense in this way. One could argue baseball has no business punishing crimes that are not baseball related. I told Len I would respond to that here, but before I do, two notes. First, some of what I'm about to say I've written about before in different places over the years. I guess many aspects of my thinking haven't changed much over time. So if any of this sounds familiar to you because you happen to have read my work in the past, well, thank you and forgive me for the repetition. Second, one of the absolute best podcasts. I said podcasts. I imagine that is a thing. Podcasts about cats. A podcast about cats. Podcasts. Don't write in telling me that it's out there. I'll, I'll, I'll find it. Anyway, what I was trying to say is that one of the very best podcasts out there is a movie history show called You Must Remember This, which is by the excellent Karina Longworth. I think Ms. Longworth is a baseball fan. By the way, I've seen her mention Ben Lindbergh's Effectively Wild, but that's beside the point. She's just a really good, polished storyteller, and she does a lot of research. In fact, she lays out how she does all her research in the show notes for every episode. 
And I need to bring her work up here because back on July 16th, she published an episode that covers the story that I'm about to very briefly recap, albeit in much greater detail and with far greater expertise. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, about what you're about to hear when you're done with this week's Infinite Inning, head over to youmustrememberthispodcast.com. I'll drop a link to that episode in the Facebook group to which we've been referring this whole time. Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle, better known as Fatty Arbuckle, was a big, pardon the expression, Hollywood star in film's earliest days. He made dozens of comedy shorts, and I guess a couple of things that qualify as full-length films or two-reelers or something. As the nickname suggests, he was a big, broad, heavy-set guy with a derby hat who did pratfalls. And he was very successful at that from the early teens until 1921. It was a run at his peak of about eight years. What ended that peak period? Well, in 1921... Arbuckle and some pals went up to San Francisco and rented a hotel suite, and they had a big party. And after that party, which apparently got kind of wild and drunk and sexy, an actress named Virginia Rapay died of a ruptured bladder. Before I proceed, if there are any children in the room who you'd prefer not hear this sort of thing, or you yourself are sensitive or triggered or anything like that, then just skip ahead a bit. I'll leave a very brief gap here. You can send Junior out to the yard. No one knows, no one knew then, how Repay came to suffer that injury. There were rumors that appear to have kind of come out of nowhere that Arbuckle raped her with a Coke bottle and caused the fatal injury. Others said that in his eagerness to get with her, to lie with her in the biblical sense, that he heaved his 300-pound body on top of her, and because of the impact, or perhaps due to a pre-existing condition, she simply burst. One of the reasons no one knows is because no one was in the room when it happened. Arbuckle himself was not alone with her for very long at all, perhaps long enough to cause injury, perhaps not. According to a witness who may or may not have been reliable, Repay did regain consciousness and pointed Arbuckle and said he did it. But did what was not said, and she was not coherent after that or not awake, and shortly thereafter she died, they didn't exactly rush to get her medical help either, which at the very least is an act of negligence or callous disregard. Arbuckle was tried three times. The first two times, the jury couldn't come to a verdict. The third time... He was not only rapidly acquitted, but the jury wrote a note of apology saying that he never should have been put through this stuff in the first place. I don't know whether he was innocent or not. I don't think that Karina Longworth knows exactly either, but her interpretation of these events, and particularly of those three trials, is very much worth listening to because she puts a spin on them that I think is only available to us now. I've never heard it before, and it's not necessarily a shift in research or as the result of research, but a shift in perspective, which is to say that it's not Arbuckle who was on trial in the end, but that his acquittal came as a result of putting Repay, the dead woman, on trial. And there's a wrongness to that that all these years later will smack you in the face. That's a necessary corrective, and here's why. Because as a result 
of the Arbuckle scandal, which got a great deal of press. It was kind of, this is a tired comparison, but the O.J. Simpson trial of its day. The movie industry did its best to wipe him off the face of the earth. No, I don't mean they put a hit on him, but they removed his films from circulation and refused to put them back out again. And they banned him from further work to avoid, they said, further discredit on the industry or to give the slightest added impetus to public outrage. Which is to say that they were avoiding censorship. They were avoiding moralistic authorities coming in and saying, we've got to clean up this Hollywood place. And this has generally been presented as Fatty got a raw deal. Fatty got railroaded. Fatty got punished for something he didn't do. He was the victim, not Virginia Rapay. And in this day and age, when we're a little more sophisticated about victims and victimizers, it's very difficult to feel any sympathy with that position or be as dismissive of Rapay, who, regardless of what version you believe, even if you believe some version of this story that is super sympathetic to Fatty Arbuckle, did anything that even slightly suggests that she deserved to die. Sure, what happened to him is not dissimilar to the blacklist that came about in the late 40s and early 50s when those same moralistic authorities began shouting communist at Hollywood. And that was both morally and legally reprehensible. But when you're talking about a crime such as murder or rape, how are you supposed to go to the theater and plunk down whatever it was in those days, a dime or two bits, and laugh at a comedian? It's exactly the same reason, I think, that Louis C.K. is no longer on public display and won't be for some time, if not permanently. It's that, unless you are a very dull tool indeed, going and trying even to laugh at that guy in succeeding in laughing at him implicates you in his crime or at the very least tacitly excuses it. Like Arbuckle's films, baseball is an entertainment. In 1912 through 1920, there was an outfielder in baseball named Benny Coff. He's known to us now as the Ty Cobb of the Federal League. He came up with the Yankees in 1912, couldn't latch on there, and when the Federal League became a thing, he went over there, and it was kind of a triple-A league, and he was better than a triple-A player, and he just exploded on that league. And in the two years that it existed, he hit 370 the first year, which led the league, also led in stolen bases with 75. He hit 44 doubles, 211 hits, 120 runs. In year two, he wasn't quite as good, but still hit 342, which again led the league and stole 55 bases likewise. Well, that league, for various reasons, goes belly up. As I always say, a story for another day. And Kauf signed with the Giants. Now, the National League was a more advanced league than the Federal League. And Kauf, therefore, was no longer the Ty Cobb of anything. But he was still really good. He hit 300 each of his first two years. By baseball reference, he was a four-win player the first year, a five-win player the second but in 1920, he got in legal trouble. He owned a garage. He was in auto repair. But the prosecutor said it was also kind of a chop shop and that one evening he was out with a couple of associates and he said, hey, I got a customer looking for a used Cadillac. How about we just take that one parked right over there? And they did. They changed a few superficial details and they resold it. Well, the police tracked it down and figured out what had happened and he was indicted for a grand theft auto. Not exactly murder or manslaughter, but still, baseball cared about this stuff, particularly in 1920, which is, as the Black Sox scandal, is still going on. Koff was eventually acquitted, but that wasn't good enough for the commissioner of baseball, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis. 
who banned him for life. He said, Your mere presence in the lineup would inevitably burden patrons of the game with grave apprehension as to its integrity. Cow fought Landis to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court, as it typically does with baseball, found in his favor, but refused to do anything about it. This is actually a worse deal than Arbuckle got, because Arbuckle was able to kind of come back in through the back door, direct a few movies under an assumed name, and right before his early death even got in front of the cameras at least once. But again, I don't think that Landis was wrong. And for the same reasons, that this is a game, that this is an entertainment, and we can't ever unknow what we know, as I said, unless you're a particularly dull tool. The Chicago Cubs dogpile at the end of the 2016 World Series should have been the happiest moment in the history of the game. We almost didn't need baseball anymore after that. Just about every major storyline that needed closure achieved it, except that Araldus Chapman was in that dogpile. And at least for me, I couldn't unknow that. It is undoubtedly naive to say that every player about whom we know nothing of their off-field activities is as pure and white as the freshly fallen snow. I know that's not the case. But until they hurt someone, they do have that presumption. And we can cheer for them without experiencing the kind of cognitive dissonance that erupts when you're going, hooray, Elmo, whoever Elmo is, he's a DH for some team somewhere, when Elmo hits a home run, knowing that because of Elmo's off-the-field activities, we would hesitate to invite him to our house or have him around our kids. So to come full circle to the question that Len asked, is there an argument that baseball has no business punishing crimes that are not baseball-related? Well, I think what we've had is a confusion of terms. No, Roberto Osuna or any other player who has committed an act of domestic violence has not committed a crime against baseball in the sense that what they did will possibly alter the outcome of an at-bat or a game, whether by using a corked bat, by juicing, by consorting with gamblers, or anything. That is not what they have done. But they have committed a crime against baseball's audience. And I do think that baseball has a right and a responsibility to respond at that point because the audience is their life's blood, because they are ultimately dispensable, and if they are not pleasing to their customers, if the morality of the game descends below the morality of the audience, then there is no more baseball, or at least there's a very shrunken vestige of baseball that will remain in the aftermath of its failure to act. And let me say one thing further, that crimes against baseball and crimes against baseball's audience are one and the same thing. Do you think that the owners of baseball give a damn about who uses PEDs? They didn't until Congress threatened to call them on it. Just as from the founding of the game through 1920, they didn't give a damn about who threw games or who bet on them at least, or if they did, very intermittently, and they winked and nudged and turned a blind eye wherever they could. They reacted to cheating when it became an existential threat, which is to say, when it was a crime against the audience because they worried that the audience would no longer view the games as legitimate competition. Matters of domestic violence are exactly the same. They wouldn't care to police it, but they've realized that it's the same kind of threat to the participation of the audience. It's just a different vehicle. Mull that over if you would. We'll take a break 
for thoughtful reflection and a word perhaps from our sponsors, and then I'll be back at last with David Roth. See you on the other side. stalks the rain-slicked streets of the city looking for bodega cats in trouble. His business card reads simply, have pen, we'll travel. It's just him and his friend, Harry Pablo, a chimpanzee with an ACLU membership and a sad blues harmonica. He's a writer and editor for Deadspin. He's your friend and mine. He's David Roth. How are you, David? I'm good, man. I actually just saw a very good bodega cat sitting uh, with an air of great ownership outside of uh, its bodega on York Avenue last night. And I wanted to photograph it, but it was eyeballing me and I felt intimidated. <sighs> so I just kept on moving. You know, there's a whole Twitter feed for that. There's a Twitter feed for everything. Yes. People will, will send you anything, but there is a, my, my wife subscribes to it. The bodega cats or at bodega cats, Twitter feed there. There's some pretty amazing specimens lurking about your corner grocery yeah. stores yeah. in New York city. Generally, especially when the weather is as annoying as it's been of late, you can find them like sitting on top of the good humor ice cream fridge, just plots out <laughs> on their bellies. This one was like on the stoop like old, old fashioned, old New York style, like just being like, it's too hot to be in there. Like if it could have had a shitty folding beach chair, I imagine it would have. I don't know how that works with the health code laws, which New York is so zealous about enforcing. I don't know with those open salad bars, if you ever see fluffy capering lightly past the coleslaw or whatever. But yeah, it does seem like the only thing preventing that from getting really bad is that cats don't like hearts of palm. (laughs) So David, I'm feeling a, a little pressure here not to start you off on a down note, but just before we came on, I was over on iTunes and I was preparing to leave my my own first. I'm such a hypocrite because I ask people to do this all the time, rate and review and subscribe and all that because it helps bring the show up to the top of the Mm -hmm. iTunes rankings and then people see it as opposed to it getting buried down, down there somewhere with some, no offense to people who like knitting podcasts or anything, but doesn't have a large audience. I I realize there's no good analogy I can make there that's not going to offend someone. So maybe (laughs) I should back off on that. Last week I had Will Leach on. He has the Grierson and Leach podcast, which is a really good movie review podcast. And they have a deal where if you leave them a positive review, they will actually devote a segment to the film of your choice, which is too good an offer for me not to take them up on it. So I was about to do that. And I stopped off on the way to read my own reviews, the reviews of this show which is always a bad idea as you and I both know don't don't read the comments yeah, but they are it. almost uniformly positive and I and I'm very grateful for that but the, there was one sort of negative one that I wanted to share with you because again I I feel a, a little little pressure to conform to someone else's perception of of what the show should be so this was left by Juke of URL or, or Juke yeah. of Earl, which I guess is kind of funny. He It's a th- three stars. So like not devastating, but he wrote in search of podcasts. I rarely read the reviews, but since even comic book podcasts now have people breaking into political rants, I'm now reading first before I subscribe. I'm well aware the upside of podcasts is no guys in suits telling hosts what to say. It's also the downside. 
When I listen to a baseball program, I don't want to hear about your kids, your lunch, or why your mother-in-law is a saint, even if she was a pot-smoking hippie in the 60s. This is a podcast for NPR-style-leaning listeners. If that's what you like, come and get it. There's some good content if you can wade through the liberal guilt traps. You got duked. You got duked. I really did. And I I feel like I really haven't covered a lot of these things too extremely. So not that I would do anything just to piss off some stranger, but how was your lunch? And was your mother-in-law a pot-smoking but saintly hippie in the 1960s? So he didn't agree with her. Uh, It would have been the 70s, um, but it was not really (laughs) her style. I believe she tried it once or twice and made her anxious. Uh, She's a very nice lady. I'll be seeing her sooner than later uh, when my wife and I go up to Maine. I can talk more about my wife if you think that Duke would like it. <laughs> or I could just, or we could go do through the uh, the Portland Sea Dogs roster and we could talk um, Eastern League baseball if you think that would be more what your listeners would like. Have you ever seen a Portland Sea Dogs cap? I don't know if they've changed the logo lately, but I yeah, haven't known I have, I have one. So is it still a, the head of a puppy on the body of a seal with a bat in its mouth? You fucking know it, dude. <laughs> it is, it's very much, I wore it just the other day. That It's a good hat. There's um, there's a very silly picture that my wife and I took years ago. Of They have like a, a you know, sort of a lucite large plastic statue of the sea dog outside of the stadium making a very silly pose like because it's doing the dog thing where it's kind of expectantly holding its hands up like i I will receive a treat for this and (laughs) i just so it's uh kate standing next to the statue in an identical pose without a bat in her mouth it would be that would be very difficult for her for with a regulation size bat but it is uh it's a, a terrific weird goofy uh, statue it's a fun place to watch a game too they have like all the teams in the red sox system i guess now has they have a a, like a replica green monster in left field presumably to help left fielders learn to play caroms that should not be (laughs) but it is a it's a fun place to see any good beers i got the hat trying to think if i saw i never really the games i was at i think like the only major leaders i saw there were like lars anderson and kanakoa Teixeira, who is on the yankees team not a lot of big leaders in the monitors for me. That, that logo is disturbing to me, though. It's it's not quite a seal. It's not quite a manatee. And it's not a dog. It's it's all three. It's Island of Dr. Moreau stuff, which is not necessarily what you yeah. want to be thinking of. It's always neat, though, when you run into a prospect at a, at a low-level minor league game because, A, you can talk to them. And I've had the experience of being in random parts of the country and noticing – say that there's a guy from my part of New Jersey on the roster and hey, I'll go say hello and bring news from home as if that's not a thing you can get on on the internet. And I had this this one experience and no one I think will remember this guy, but there was a prospect on the Pirates that Baseball America was hyping for a while. This, This is 20 years ago at this point named Will Pennyfeather. And he was playing, I saw a game and I don't remember if he was on the home team or the visiting team, but I was in Birmingham and he was at that game. Alabama? Yeah, Birmingham, Alabama. It's one of my my only times through. It, It was on the way to my ultimate destination in Mississippi. And I was saying to a friend as he jogged in from right field, which happened to be where where we were sitting, hey, that's Will Pennyfeather. He's supposed to be some hot stuff prospect. And he looked up, he had heard it, and he shot me a dirty look. And from then till now, I've been trying to figure out how I possibly could have offended Will Pennyfeather by saying that he was one of the top-rated prospects in the pirate system at that yeah. time. Was he like supposed to be? Well, 
check this out. I'm going to go one <laughs> for five. Like, what? <laughs> I'm going to show that bossy jerk. It's a weird moment to replay in your mind over and over again. But from time to time, I do. And was like, was my inflection too skeptical? Hey, check this guy out. It's a weird thing, though. It's a risk at minor league games, though, because they, they can hear you. They are nearby. There's not that many other people there. The one I always go back to from my experience of that when I was a kid was yelling at Brad Lowhouse of the Milwaukee Bucks during a Nets Bucks <laughs> game when I was a kid. And it was very quiet and I had a terrible teenage voice and he just looked, he looked over at me like he saw right where I was and he just shook his head. <laughs> and I felt terrible because first of all, I'd been like, Lowhouse, you're terrible. And then he looked at me and was like, come on, man. Like I already have to be Brad Lowhouse every day. Do you think I want to be in like East Rutherford, New Jersey right now? <laughs> you need to be a dick about it. 12 year old brace face David Roth. And I, I think at that moment I knew that I was wrong and, and Brad Lowhouse <laughs> was right. It's neat, the accessibility of it. I don't think I ever told you this, but one of my earliest childhood memories is my mother is a psychologist. At the time that the Nets first came to New Jersey, I think they were kind of homeless and playing at Rutgers somewhere. She, I guess, I, I had a patient on the roster or on the coaching staff. I don't know. But what was neat about it was that the NBA was such kind of a small scale deal. And the nets were such a nothing thing that I remember her saying like, yeah, we're just going to go to the nets practice facility now. And we just kind of walked in and I, I must've been like three years older or something. And I just remember just very casually mingling about these very tall people while my mother talked to whoever she had to talk to. But it was like the, just the most casual thing, whereas now you'd go through eight x-ray detectors and have your credentials checked four times and, and that kind of thing. But yeah. at, at that time, just the Nets were just another bunch of guys hanging out at Rutgers. It was like that when I was in high school. I remember my, the first sports story I ever wrote was a Gonzo Nets fan, and I went to their – like practice like basically like training camp which they had at jadwin gym at princeton which isn't even the varsity basketball gym <laughs> it's, it's like the intramural one and i talked to different people i remember talking to Dwayne shincius and like jason williams and stuff like that and it was all very like what's your advice for ninth graders you know like just kind of <laughs> not really knowing uh, how to do that I, of course i've not gotten better at that particular part of the job but i have, i am taller and my voice breaks less often now but it was cool i mean but it was definitely the sort of thing where like even after i left i was like wow it's weird that i was the only media there that like the ridgewood new jersey high times was the only one that was there <laughs> I th i'm sure that's changed and yet you know i spent a whole lot of time on the princeton campus because my wife got her doctorate there and was around the jadwin gym many times and it's dead smack in the middle of the main campus, basically. And it always seemed weird to me somehow, because first of all, it just blends in with the rest of the gothic stuff everywhere. And somehow I don't expect a gym to look like Winchester Cathedral or something. Yeah. Like, it's supposed to look like a rundown thing like that houses Burgess Meredith yeah. in a Rocky movie. A field house, like yeah. a, a large Quonset hut. <laughs> right. At best. At best. But no, this looks like something that you could hold off the invading Visigoths from. Yeah, that's and, I think it, it's weird because it, it is very designed. And yet it also speaks to the questionable taste of the people involved there because they like they just can't fucking stop. Like, <laughs> everything has to have a steeple on it. You know, They're like if they did outhouses, it would look like it was just some sort of like Germanic drip of like stained glass and concrete. <laughs> I love that about that place to to a certain extent. I, I have this permanent quest going on in that 
Princeton University used to be just one building. It was just old Nassau Hall, which is this the 1700s building in the middle of campus. And the Revolutionary War Battle of Princeton took place just a couple of miles, if maybe not even down the road from there. Legend has it, or I suppose fact has it, that a cannonball carried from the battlefield and hit Nassau Hall and that the divot from said cannonball is still visible on the exterior of the building. But I have spent... I don't know why this is important, but I have spent so much time staring at that building and walking around it in little circles, trying to find the mark of this cannonball, <laughs> which which may be buried under the literal ivy of this Ivy League school. I'm not sure, but uh, I try. I really this try. This feels like a, a metaphor for some sort of Steve Goldman thing or other, but I can't <laughs> quite put my finger on what it is. <laughs> Contemplating the cathedral, looking for divots over the course of, uh, like, annually over the course of many years. It's both trivial and futile, which describes sort of my whole approach to, <laughs> to things. Yeah, just yours, not me. <laughs> it's different. I work in online media. You know, that, that rem- reminds <laughs> me of something you tweeted this weekend. And this, before we get to the sportsness of everything, I, I, I do want to ask about this because you said, I dreamt an entire shitty stories process through the entire news cycle. It involves ICE arresting an elderly Hungarian man who can't speak English and him turning out to be important somehow. It sucked. It occurred to me that you were actually dreaming the plot of the Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks movie, The Terminal. I might have been. But yes, it is not dissimilar. That's a very good call. I just remember waking up. It's happened sometimes. You wake up from a dream and you're not, you're not like intrigued. You're not like, I remember waking up and being like, well, that seemed realistic. Like, I wonder if that was really a thing that's happening and was based on something I read before bed. It doesn't appear to have been. Not to say that like ICE didn't wrongfully arrest somebody before I went to sleep. I just (laughs) probably, I don't remember reading that story. I was so disappointed in myself when I woke up or I was just like, this is your time to like, just fucking turn your unconscious loose. You could think about anything. Like you won't even have any control over what it is. And then like, I just dreamt about like tweets, very bleak. <laughs> well, at least it was a story. Like I'm sure you've had yeah. nights. We all have them. I think, I, I mean, this is maybe like second on my list to the flashback to high school dream, either the version where I'm whatever age I am now, but somehow I'm still in high school and I'm screaming, let me out. I graduated long ago. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. The alternative version in which I'm just in high school, but I can't find my pants, <laughs> which which is is uncomfortable. And and they're both anxiety things, I guess. But the the the, the dream where you ha- are sleeping, I guess, in a shallow way, I've written whole articles that way or have spent nights researching baseball reference in some fictional way while feel barely sleeping and, and feeling exhausted when I woke up. Cause essentially my brain was just still at my desk all night. Yeah, no, I for sure have been there as well. It's not a great feeling. It is also weird. I have, I think I've probably talked to you a little bit about this, maybe on the podcast or maybe not, but my dad was in psychoanalysis for so long. He no longer is that I feel like by the end of it, his dreams were not uh, coded anymore that they just arrived (laughs) as like, it was like getting a telegram or something, you know? And so it was like, he would have a dream and he would wait, like be in a room and like his mom would walk in and be like, I was always disappointed in you. And he'd be like, I suspected as much. And then he'd wake up and be like, huh, (laughs) but like, there's no wolves, you know, there's no, like nobody, like not like the man from another place comes out and starts dancing and talking backwards. Like it's just boring. It's all you have is your neurosis. There's no, veneer on it anymore which has always been a fear of mine it's like if rod serling began every twilight zone episode by saying 
at the end of this, it will all be revealed to be yeah, right. <laughs> like <laughs> stories. There are some crazy ones. For instance, <laughs> submitted for your approval. The story, I mean. Yeah. It would be very we're just going to tell you in advance it's not going to end well <laughs> classic rod classic always rod. playing with that irony i love that man so much and what a fantastic writer and one of the many great artists and just regular people just slain by the cigarettes he was always smoking on camera yeah. and you know the the other day turner classics was was this is a hell of a digression even for this podcast the other, the other day <laughs> turner classics was running Great a to review this podcast. <laughs> I'm not talking about saintly hippies yet. I don't know why. <laughs> why couldn't you be a saintly hippie? Like, isn't that the whole point of being a hippie? Other kinds of hippie. I don't. I, I mean, look, there were. Nice dirty- Charles Manson, but you know, right? Exactly. I mean, look, there there were some who like took the like back to nature, no bathing thing to an extreme. Mm. I'm like, I'm old enough to remember, just as I'm old enough to remember when the nets. Well, really, who respects the Nets now either? But I mean, yeah. I'm I'm old enough to re- to remember like you know signs on on doors which are are less prevalent now because I look for them on like you know the door to the Seven Eleven no shirt no shoes no service because mm-hmm. you know dressing was optional back then that kind yeah. of thing that was those dirty hippies I mean there there are downsides to everything but I, I don't see that the the categories are are mutually exclusive. Yeah, dirtiness is not a crime. It's just an instance of bad taste. Exactly. But what I was going to say was that Turner Classics was running this whole stream of Leonard Bernstein public television concerts in which were f- designed for kids where he would play classical music and then kind of explain it to you. And he was another guy, although he lasted longer than Rod Serling, who smoked on camera continually and then later died of lung cancer. And I just kept thinking that there's some weird Bernstein crossover with Rod Serling there that has has been underexploited in, in the literature, but it's a it's a damn shame regardless. Yeah, certainly the smoking on camera thing is always like, I mean, I think I did see some of that when I was young, but never like the things where it'd be like a guy you know sitting in a chair talking to you about something. You know, I saw plenty of that type of television in my life, but at some point it was like, I think that somebody just realized it was extraneous that like the person be smoking, you know, that it didn't necessarily add anything to it. I think Morton Downey Jr. was the last person (laughs) I saw smoking on camera in a talk show format, but that was very much uh, done on on purpose. I just always think, was it that Rod couldn't put it down for that long was he that yeah. addicted that he couldn't get through a twilight zone shoot of his 90 second intro and outro that he he could not be away from the cigarettes that long yeah he'd just be like a clammy mess if he wasn't holding one i don't know i mean i'm not gonna tell you it doesn't look cool on camera especially in black and white but at the same time like i don't know i feel this way uh while we're doing digressions about the same way about the uh, bob's discount furniture ads in which <laughs> he's wearing his little cell phone holster while he's making his pitch. And it's like, Bob is not taking a call during the commercial. You can leave your phone somewhere else. I know you're all business because you're all about moving those uh, sectional sofas, but for goodness sake, I mean, it just feels disrespectful. You know, sometimes you have to inconvenience yourself. You think I want to be sober right now at five thirty-five PM? Ordinarily I wouldn't be coherent at all, but I have to do a podcast. Exactly. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I myself have a tankard of absinthe right next to me. That's so how you get, that's where the, uh, the read on stuff comes from. That's where the real, the real deep infinite inning essays, it's all improvised and it's, you don't remember hardly any of it. It's out of the green bottle. (laughs) 
You're listening to Sarah Vaughn sing the 1933 Jerome Kern Otto Harback composition, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. She recorded this in 1958, and it's surely not a coincidence that it was the same year that the Platters, a rock and roll group by the standards of the time, I guess we'd call them more doo-wop now, had a number one hit with the same old chestnut. Now, normally I wouldn't say anything so disparaging about a song from this period as to call it a chestnut, but not everything ages equally well, even if Jerome Kern did write it. And if you listen to the early versions of this song, it was performed by Irene Dunn, for example, in the 1935 Astaire Rogers picture. Roberta, and note if you look at the lobby poster that Dunn was a bigger star than Astaire and Rogers at the time. The performance is stilted as hell and sounds like some wounded creature crying out in great pain, but the platter showed the way with a lush arrangement and a soaring vocal by lead singer Tony Williams, who just had a spectacular voice. Listen to that or The Great Pretender, and you'll know what I'm talking about. And they saved the song. We'll take a quick break, and then David Roth and I finally go diving into baseball. Hang in there, please. ask you about a bunch of stuff you, you've written, but I, I can't resist kind of skipping ahead to this because it's a Mets thing. And I know how much you 
love the Mets thing. And and your last comment on on the Mets, your last official public comment over on Deadspin was essentially begging for Rob Manfred to intervene for there to be some act of God that would simply sweep the will ponds away. I cannot offer that to you. But there was a, a very kind of minor Metsy observation that I saw, and I, I apologize to, to whether it's John Heyman or Ken Rosenthal. I don't remember who said it, but they were saying that the Mets are very psyched to re-sign Jose Bautista after yeah. this season. It was whether they trade him or not before the deadline. Like, I don't even give him a fucking qualifying offer. But go <laughs> ahead, continue. Well, right, that's kind of my point. So he's going on 38, and he had a nice little, I think we talked about it a while back, too, that like when they signed him, it was kind of exciting to see him perk up a little bit. But since then, overall, the the line is not great. He's He's hitting 204. He's slugging 361, and and the only nice thing that he has going for him is that he walks a lot, so he has a 352 on base. But when you're saying, when you're not saying, I should say, like, well, we got a really nice hot streak out of this guy that seems to be otherwise done. We will thank our local deities for that and move on. But instead you're saying, no, we're going to go double or nothing. That's the sign of a really dysfunctional front office. Well, Stephen, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's terrible. It also just shows how, I mean, whatever. I, I think that I would ordinarily not appeal to the Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office for any reason. <laughs> and I think in that piece, it was still it was mostly just designed to sort of illustrate that, first of all, that this is a thing that that can and has happened. I mean, not even that long ago, really. I mean, the, the current ownership group of the Los Angeles Dodgers got them from Frank McCourt, who was basically forced to sell a team because he was so embarrassing and because he was using the team as a sort of piggy bank to pay his personal debts. All of which is also true of the Mets. It's different personal debts. It's not the sort of thing where like they have a $10,000 a month hairdresser on retainer as the McCords did <laughs> or where he, they have announced in public as Frank McCord did that he needs $170 million to properly divorce his wife. Or God will call him home. Right. <laughs> yeah, for real. The, the Oral Roberts of Calabasas. <laughs> I mean, the reason that I, I wound up writing that, I think, is that it's just like, it's one thing to have bad ownership. I mean, I think that a lot of, you know, teams have it. And certainly, you know, historically, we're not really, you know, we are in the broad context of baseball, just a blink away from the time when there were a half dozen owners in baseball that were actively not trying to make their teams better. And were mostly just kind of weird local bullies, you know, <laughs> the, the Wilpons are sort of the, I mean, depending on what you think of Peter Angelos are sort of the last of that type of owner. But it seems like they are getting worse. I mean, like since the idea of like signing Jose Bautista for nothing and seeing if it works out is a smart move and it paid off for them. And what you do when you make a move like that is that you then take him and you trade him to a team. You give him a chance. This is another thing that helps you with veteran free agents. You give him a chance to play for a contender. This is like a thing that it's like a basic human resources bit of niceness that the Mets would, uh, the Wilpons especially, would not ever occur to them. But then you trade him to the Yankees for one of the millions of weird pop-up relief arms that they have in double A and triple A <laughs> that are somehow very good and that will never fit on their 40-man roster. You could get a guy right. for Jose Bautista for a few months. But there's nothing – I mean, the idea of keeping him around, let alone playing him when he's cutting into the evaluative opportunities for actual players on your team, 
I like Jose Bautista and I've completely enjoyed watching him as a Met. I just don't understand the idea. And I've never understood the, the organizational bias towards guys that are on the wrong side of 35. There's multiple dudes like that on this Mets roster. If you go back over even some of the last really good Mets rosters, the 2006 or 17 had like five guys on it who were older than 40. It was Julio Franco, Moises Alou, El Duque. There's other guys on top of that. Uh, Conine was on that roster. Like just like weird old dudes is the, the of all the anti-moneyball disruptions to settle upon. The idea of like someone who voted for Gerald Ford <laughs> does not seem to be like the, the real bleeding edge one. But. That, that team was hugely old. And just to name a few of the guys that you were referring to, some of whom played quite well, but you had, yeah. you had just going down the roster. Paula Duca was 34. Carlos Delgado was 34. Jose Valentin was 36. David Wright, alas, a young 23. Cliff Floyd was 33. Julio Franco was 47. Sean Green, 33. Michael Tucker, 35. Eli Marrero, 32. Mike DeFelice, 37. Kelly Stinnett, 36. And then over on the pitching side, Tom Glavin, 40. Steve Traxel, 35. Pedro Martinez, 34 and rapidly coming to the end. El Duque, 40. Yeah, this is Darren Oliver, 35. This is I mean, it's remarkable. How does that even happen? You're not paying attention. And and the, the pitching staff averaged 32.4 years of age uh, as a weighted average. And this is the problem. It was a good team. But as the Yankees discovered in the 80s, you are always on the verge of having your whole roster age out at once. And yeah. I don't care what kind of farm system you have. And they didn't have a great one. Yeah, but, they didn't care either. That was another problem. Right. But, yes. but you can't replace everybody at once. And and the Yankee, this is how what the Yankees did, and they would constantly be replacing thirty four year olds with thirty four year olds. With the result that you know you give that guy a three year contract or a five year contract, and he's no fun anymore quite rapidly, and you never get any better. In fact, what the the Batista threat to resign him reminded me of was that in, naturally enough that in nineteen eighty five in September nineteen eighty five the Yankees traded a pitching prospect Jim Deshays and two other prospects, players to be named later, to the Houston Astros for a 40-year-old Joe Negro. Joe Negro had been in the major leagues since 1960 freaking seven. He had predated Sergeant Peppers by like six weeks. That's how old he was. And George Steinbrenner said, we've been watching him for a long time. We think he's the real deal. Yes, you've been watching him since the Vietnam War. But, But, you know, and he said, and we fully intend to re-sign him, which they did. But yeah. why? Why he's a forty-year-old knuckleballer getting indifferent results? You don't do that. You can't win that way. And that's exactly what saying we're we're going to re up on Batista is. Yeah, I mean, I, and again, I understand that if it's the sort of thing you're saying, like we really like what he's done in the clubhouse, and like you know, whatever. If you want to bring him back next year on the veterans minimum as a guy that you know is like a pinch hitter, and whatever, it's also weird because the Mets have this thing where they think that every old guy provides veteran leadership. And like Jose Bautista is many things and has been, you know, fairly recently, like as badass a player as there has been in major league baseball. You don't hear a lot of stuff about him as a mentor, as a general rule, the same way that when they had that with Adrian Gonzalez earlier this year, but they were like, yeah, this is a guy that we think can really like show our young first baseman a thing or two or whatever. And like, not only was he completely cooked, like that's just not what Adrian Gonzalez's reputation is. Like no other team would say that. Not to say he's a bad guy, but he's not a dude that's like considered to be like Mr. Mentor. 
And I don't think that Bautista is either. He's a proud athlete and he still thinks he's a star. So like he, in the same way that Jose Reyes would be, would be upset by not playing every day. The way that the Mets have gotten around that is by playing him every day, which has been a really interesting way to tank his value. You know, the most recent of the bit of Mets goofery was uh, them saying that they, they feel like they were over-reliant on analytics during the Sandy Alderson years, and they'd like to kind of right the ship and get back to the center on that. Their analytics department consists of one full-time staffer. He was apparently highly influential, the puppet master behind the whole operation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no one knows the power that TJ Barra brings. And apparently he's everybody that I know that writes about the Mets says he's smart as a whip. He's really good at what he does. He also has three interns working for him. And basically it's like either no one listens to him or the guy that used to listen to him is gone. I mean, I just don't understand. It's all feels like we're litigating the, you know, sort of grouchy grievances of guys who, I mean, in the owner's case, in Fred Wilpon's case, an 81 year old man who has to sign off on every personnel decision that the team makes. And also, and this is the part of it that I find really magical and like kind of a throwback to those like Steinbrenner, Marge Schott eras of like super powerful owners that also maybe like don't know what they're talking about. Like it's clear that Fred Wilpon fancies himself like a baseball guy, but it also seems clear that he really hasn't followed the game very closely. And I think that that's the secret sauce in why they keep having these old guys. It's just, it's like the way that Daniel Snyder used to do it, where it's like you remember, like I we've been watching uh, you know, whatever, like Jay Bruce a long time. Like, cause you remember that he hit like 30 home runs for the Reds in 2011. And then he did it again for you last year. And that's enough. Or the idea of like Jose Bautista, you're like, yeah, that guy just hit a big home run in the American league playoffs last year. Right. And it's like, if you don't pay that much attention to baseball, like, yeah, yeah, sure. Last year. One of those years. Right. A year. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 1922, I believe it was. Right, yeah, it was good. I remember he hit, hit it off of somebody whose name was like Long Jim something or other, right? Wait, good... Hoyt gave it up, I, I yep. believe. <laughs> but, you know, that that's a, a really unfair knock on the analytics department because you could have Bill James and Albert freaking Einstein himself in your analytics department speaking fluent German to each other, for all I know, and You'd still have Jose Reyes playing third base half the time. There's nothing that they can do. What insight can they give you that's going to fix that situation? And apparently that's the thing that Howard uh, wrote something for me last week at Deadspin, Howard Magdal. Probably one of the few actual experts on the like broader Wilpon way of doing things. I think there's other people that know stuff but don't write about it. (laughs) But uh, he does. And he said that like people in the baseball ops department were like, don't resign Jose Reyes, man. Like it's over. It's nice. We had a good run. You know, like he did have two moderately happy years with the team at the end of his career. And if that's the sort of thing that you get sentimental about, then there it was, but they assigned him anyway. I don't think any other major league team would have signed him. They've kept him on the roster all year. They've like DFA numerous guys off of the roster. None of them remarkable prospects, but Reyes is, I mean, by the numbers has been one of the, the worst infielders in baseball this year. And yet they keep coming up with reasons not to cut him. And one of the reasons that the Mets, again, justify keeping Reyes around is that there would be this this idea of veteran leadership and mentorship. And it seems like, you know, unlike with Gonzalez or whatever, like, you know, Rosario and some of the other young players on the team apparently really do like Reyes. But also, like, Rosario has a bunch of really terrible low effort habits in the field now that I don't recall from last year. And as a hitter, he really seems like he shows flashes. I mean, he's clearly, he's got a quick bat. Like there's a lot of stuff in there that you could 
and he's still very young, you know, that could get better, but also like he never walks. Like he doesn't know of the classic sort of Mets prospect thing. Like he can't bunt and he can't steal a base. Like any of these other sort of like peripheral things, he just seems like he was never taught during his trip through the minors. And uh, Reyes is not teaching them to him, but it's also like, I mean, right now, like the comparisons that I have in my head for like Rosario are these guys, players that don't exist anymore. Like Eric Yelding, like these like (laughs) fast guys with no tools like, that's just not like a, a dude that you see on major league rosters. I didn't think he was going to hit a whole lot, but what I had in my mind, given the hype that was around him, was I thought maybe the high upside was something like the first few years of Ray Ordonez, where mm-hmm. Ordonez didn't hit it all either. But at but least it didn't matter. He, yeah, he really, well, at least until his back went. But he, right. he made up for it or came as close as you could make up for not hitting it all with some exemplary glove work. But it doesn't seem like Rosario is at that level at all. No, I mean, he's, it's weird, too, because you could see how he could get better. Like, it's not the sort of thing where he can't get the balls or whatever, which is for many years. I mean, the Mets haven't had even an adequate defensive shortstop since really since Jose Reyes left in free agency the first time around. And the guys that they've played there since have been, I mean, just really some guys that, that couldn't do it at all or couldn't do it anymore. And Rosario can, like, cover ground. And yet, like, there's a lot of balls, like, that he just does not, you know, he gets there, but doesn't get to it somehow. And, you know, if that changes, then things are different. But, like, also, he's already in the majors. He's completing his first full season in the majors. So it's reasonable to be apprehensive about that. They rush some prospects. They're too slow on others. Just not a good baseball organization, Steve. That's my last (laughs) word on that one. We're going to leave them behind in a second. But I wanted to ask you one other question because I don't actually know the right answer to this. And I didn't get to ask you because you, you weren't on during the trading deadline. But there was a lot of discussion about whether they should move to Grom or move Noah Syndergaard to restart the team. The thought was they would get a huge load of prospects for one or both of those guys. And I think that's true. And I don't know the, the answer to whether that would be the right call or not, because usually whether you get a prospect or not, they're, they're not going to turn into Syndergaard or DeGrom. So you're, yeah. you're, tre- you're treading water. It's very hard to trade a star level player and get a star level kid back. But when DeGrom, the thing that I keep thinking about is even though he's not going to be a free agent for a couple more years, not till after the 2020 season, that sounds so weird to say when you go through a year and you're 30 years old and you have a 1.77 ERA, this kind of shades of Jake Arrieta three years ago, there's nowhere to go, but down there are very few pitchers peak Pedro Martinez, maybe Clayton Kershaw for a few years who sustain at this level. And DeGrom has been a good pitcher, but doesn't have a track record of this. And again, I mean, no one does. Right. Listen to the names you just said, you know? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like he's not suddenly Christy Mathewson. So it, it sounds like a horrible thing to do to trade this guy who's doing so well, do that to your fan base and deal him, you know, as the cliche goes while he's hot. But I feel like that's exactly when you should have dealt him. Well, I mean, it is in the in that sense. I mean, I think that that's the only argument for it that really made sense to me. But to me, the I mean, the issue with it is, first of all, that the team doesn't develop young players well. And so, you know. <laughs> so why bother? Yeah, they don't seem to evaluate them very well. I mean, so it's the sort of thing where the idea of having one of your three interim co-GMs work out a deal for the best pitcher in the National League so that you can get numbers like five, nine, and then 
like two A ball arms back from some team. Like, no, like, I, I just don't think they would do a good job in that regard. But then also if you're serious about it, like you're right that if you're like, if you're serious about trying to build a winning team, the weirdest thing about this Mets team to me, or maybe the most telling, cause it doesn't really feel that weird when you are familiar with ownership's MO is that they have $0 in committed payroll for the 2021 season. Nobody, except for the arbitration eligible guys, no contract carries that far forward. And what you would ordinarily do, what you would have done with DeGrom, for instance, two years ago, when it was clear that he was an older prospect who had become, you know, really a non-prospect, a ninth round pick, who had become a big star and was like going to be a guy that was going to make some all-star teams for you. I don't think, even if you didn't anticipate this outcome, what you do then is you lock him up throughout his arbitration years and for some period beyond that. That, which shows, first of all, a commitment to that player, and it shows a commitment you know, to the fans on that sort of thing. And then also, it makes the player more valuable, which is why, like, for instance, the, the Rays were able to get like, a couple of you know, what seemed to me to be like, probably or possibly very good Major League Baseball prospects from the Pirates in exchange for Chris Archer, who's not nearly the pitcher that DeGrom is, because he's locked in at right. a team-friendly rate. But that level of forethought is not really the way that the Mets do it. And so they'll just slug it out in arbitration at the end of every year, which creates all kinds of bad vibes. And I don't think that they really understand, or maybe they do understand it because they did that deal. They did one deal of that type with Juan Lagares, who's been hurt uh, for the first two years of it. And I really do feel like the way that these guys work is that they're going to look at that experience, that one experience and be like, well, look what happened with Lagares. We're paying him and he can't even play. And you can legitimately first guess that deal. I mean, at the time, because Lagares was a guy who his his whole contribution was based around his legs. It wasn't it wasn't like if he fell back in one department, he had another skill to accentuate 100 percent of the values in the glove and there's a long way down from that. It's weird too, because the stuff that's happened to him since hasn't been injured himself crashing into a wall. With Ligaris, it's been like fluky, weird injuries. He actually like took a step forward offensively this year in the little brief period he was there. But like a little bit of like, for a team that doesn't, you know, that makes a point of not caring about defense, they could have been like, you know, all right, we're going to, we're, we're doing it. We're going to pay a small price. and We're going to have a great defensive center fielder. And we're going to see if that works out. And like, it just doesn't, it seems like they, like somehow the relative backfiring of that decision, I mean, the idea of like paying a guy $5 million, most of which is covered by insurance to, because he can't play because he hurt his toe or whatever, that like the lesson that they took from that was no extensions for young players. <laughs> also defense is overrated. They, get, they just hurt their toes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really bizarre to me. I mean, I would love as a fan of the team and also as a fan of like, I mean, I, I never want to pull for like Jacob DeGrom to get less money than he's worth. But I think that there is like a reasonable middle ground that engages with the fact that he is 30 years old, that he is having a season that, like you said, is extremely valuable, but then also not repeatable. So like, you don't want to go to arbitration with a guy that just won the Cy Young award, right? Like if there's some team friendly five-year deal or four-year deal that you can sign him to, then like you pony up for that. And then you're able to say, to fans. And then also, you know, honestly with the Mets, like possibly to a future buyer, if they can ever get their head around that, like, at least we have this, like we have controllable, a few controllable young stars. And then a couple of guys that we have like effectively like locked up at rates that are going to deliver value in the next few years that will then enable you to use the money that you're not paying them for 
at an ARB friendly or at a, you know, arbitration appropriate rate that you could then sign good players or you could sign Jay Bruce, again, <laughs> whichever you want, but it's all, even if he's under contract, just keep re-signing him. And this is like rudimentary baseball shit. I mean, like longtime listeners of this program or readers of my work will know that I'm a dummy. Like, I don't really understand this stuff. Like I'm, I sort of do like, I care about the team and I watch a lot of games, but like, this is not revolutionary, like bleeding edge shit. Like this is just like basic 2018 best practices of running a baseball team. Absolutely. In the meantime, though, I will turn on their games just so I can see Jeff McNeil swing his knoblest bat. Oh, it's good. It sounds like pornography. I know it does, especially when you phrase it that way. But <laughs> but it's a beautiful swing, and it is a weird ass bat. It looks like a fungo. Listening to Lida Roberti in the 1932 Paramount musical Dancers in the Dark. Roberti was born in Poland, as you can hear by the accent, came here, became a Broadway star, went into movies, and then, apparently due to heart disease, just died at about 31. So it was a short ride, but kind of a good one. She specialized in songs like this that combined her inflections with kind of a sexy, saucy attitude. The song, I'm in Love with a Tune, was written by the team of Leo Robin and Ralph Ranger, a team who, just coincidentally, both their families intended them to be lawyers, but the call of composition was stronger and they turned their backs on the bar. Together and separately, they wrote more standards than I can profitably name from Bing Crosby and Elvis Presley's Blue Hawaii to Bob Hope's theme song, Thanks for the Memory, which is really dark. Have you ever really listened to the words of that one? We'll take a break, and then I'll be back to conclude my conversation with David Roth. Hang in there. This is only tangentially connected to the Mets. I said we would leave them behind, although this is one of those guys who played for them briefly at 33. But I was surprised to see you write movingly about Rick and Keel floating the idea of making a pitching comeback last week. What moved you about that story? I think just the idea. Well, it's funny. Like, so I wrote about that. It was occasioned by somebody took like a, a video they tweeted from the seats of Ankeel facing one batter in this weird summer exhibition league that's held in Louisville, that it's like seven teams of college players and just kind of the guys that show up in like wooden bath summer leagues. And then one team that's just 100% guys from like the last decade. And the lineup was just like, if you were to do the random baseball name, like if you just like ripped a crappy <laughs> pack of 2009 tops 
and you would get like Chris Burke and Paul Janish and like Brett Tomko and all these dudes. And there was the whole roster was that. I mean, there's like Jason Worth was on it, who's like, you know, was playing in the minors as recently as this year. But Ankeel is there, you know, just kind of, I think a lot of those guys are just there to like hang out with their buddies and like discuss hunting or whatever it is baseball players do when they hang out with each other. But Ankeel apparently has been since he retired as a hitter and he wrote a book about basically losing the strike zone in the way that he did back in the day, you know, when he, he had one of the most debilitating public cases of yips ever observed. Right. Or, you know, or, or the thing or the Steve Blast disease or whatever you want to call it. And he's apparently worked with other pitchers that are afflicted with that. That's become like a, a project of his. And he sort of realized that he had figured out some way to manage it that he didn't, I think, know that he had before. And something about the idea of, I mean, again, as a, as a neurotic person, but then also as someone who remembers the, the, the real worst of his meltdown. I mean, there was one, it was bad against the Braves. They won that round of the, the playoffs. And then in, it was 2000 against the Mets. He just melted down and that happened at Shea Stadium and the crowd was jeering and he was throwing the ball to the backstop and everything. And it was sad to see somebody lose control of that. And then the idea that like with enough insight and enough time and enough, you know, just sort of applied thoughtfulness that you could manage that into right. manageability for lack of a less awkward way of saying it. Like, I think that's, I found that very moving and I, I want him to, you know, I hope that he can make it back. He was a brilliant pitcher when he was there. I mean, you look at the tape of him pitching and then even at the numbers that he had, like he was always a little wild and always very hard to hit. And he was extremely young. I mean, the, that happened to him when he was uh, 21, I think, is when he lost the ability to, to throw a strike. Players that are like that, you know, sometimes they burn out. Baseball is very hard. But like sometimes there are guys that are like that, that like that's like what Max Scherzer was like before he turned into Max Scherzer. Like these things happen. Right. You know, and like the idea that you could have another bite at the apple, I think, is very a longstanding thing, especially as you get older and Kiel's about my age. But then also like there's something real there, I think. With a lot of young, hard throwing left handers, just as a normal part of the development curve. It seems like this is something that they struggle with, with command and control, not to the extent that Ankeel did, but he's like the worst case scenario. Like a lot of them, the best ones manage to kind of beat it down to the point that they become effective major league pitchers and just, you know, 0.01% of them become Randy Johnson. And, right. but in, in all cases, I mean, that's the ultimate example there of a guy, but I mean, that's comparing anyone to Randy Johnson. It's like the way that like scouts are not supposed to comp anyone to Pedro. Like it's just, well, right. And I, I'm just saying, like those, yeah. Koufax is a, is a similar thing mm -hmm. where Koufax was quite wild when he came up and he just managed to, to tame that. And again, that's unfair to compare anybody to what is on the other end of it psychologically. Like what allows you to do that? Whether it's, it's some combination of the physical, the emotional, I don't know. And I don't know if anybody knows. Yeah. And what I, I always think about is, and this is as somebody who starting at about age 30 had anxiety attacks, which I'd never had before. I had had problems with depression throughout my life, but they hadn't manifested themselves that way where I was just convinced for no particular reason that I couldn't breathe. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, and and I'm sure you have most of the time you're on autopilot with certain systems in your body. You don't have you, you might have to think like, yes, I will move my arm, I guess. I mean, maybe we don't even do that. But your heartbeat, your breathing, that's all your hypothalamus. It's this very basic primitive part of the brain that just operates these things. 
But if your will is strong enough or, or deformed enough or whatever it is by this psychological malady, you can convince yourself that you can't breathe and you can mess up this totally, I hope I'm not doing it to anybody, but this <laughs> yeah. to- totally regular part of your life, you can you just, it stops working. It really only works if you're not thinking about it, you know? Right. And I wonder if that's what sort of the the intersection of of muscle memory and anxiety derailing muscle memory does to to someone. Because, I mean, you mentioned Steve Blass. Steve Blass had this tremendous season for the Pirates, and I think it was 72, pitched in the playoffs, was allowed like two runs in 15 innings in the playoffs, and then the next spring couldn't pitch at all. That's just a really frightening thing to, to say that there's no injury there. It's not that his labrum was torn. It was just he somehow mentally could no longer complete that act of throwing the ball 60 feet, six inches and and having it. And and just saying that it's a ridiculously complex act. So it's not surprising that you could lose it, but it's such a hopeful thing. If Ankiel can come back and, and do something. Yeah. This is, I, I found the, the quote that he gave to uh, Tim Brown from Yahoo after the game. He said, he told himself, what do I have to feel anxious about? I know how to coach and talk myself through these feelings. They were still there, but it didn't matter. Which if you've ever dealt with anxiety or depression or any moment where you felt like your mind or your body was turning on you, what would you want to think more than that? You know, like I don't expect to ever be somebody that doesn't have these thoughts. And I'm, I should, you know, I hasten to mention that there, you know, there's way worse types of thoughts to have than the one that's, that I have, you know, in right. terms of doubt or, or self-criticism or any of that. But like, to be able to tell yourself to shut up, to be able to like hear these things that you know aren't true and then just keep going. Like that's what enlightenment or maturity, if you want to use a less grandiose term, feels like as an adult, as a neurotic person, you know, like you don't get to be another guy. You don't wake up someday with a brain that's a hundred percent on your side, 100% of the time. You just learn to work with what you got. And that's really hard. In fact, hell, I was in therapy today and we were talking about this and it's much less of a problem for me than it was. But that in part is because I'm on drugs that turn it off to to a certain extent. You get told, remember that you're your own safe place and tell yourself, you know, that you really can breathe and, and just try to kind of derail the process that is going to carry you to this place where you're curled up in a fetal position thinking that you can't. And yet that dude whether it's Blass or Ankiel or Daniel Bard, who you mentioned, yeah. is on a mound, possibly in front of 50,000 people and another 5 million on television. There's probably no good way to do that at that moment. Right. You don't get breaks, you know, like you don't get like in any sense of the word. I mean, the, like there's just no space to hide in. If you don't throw the pitch, then the baseball doesn't happen. Bard stuck with it for so long. And it's the first year that he doesn't have a baseball reference line in a really long time. But I mean, like it is just it was gone. He was hitting guys, walking guys, like to the point where like he was almost so bad that he couldn't be ineffective, you know, that it was like no one was getting hits off of him because he was either like plunking them or walking them. There is a line on (laughs) this is maybe not real serious because it's such a, a small sample and I don't even mean to giggle at it, but in Two thir- 2013 and 2014 on, on his baseball reference cards, there are numbers like walks per nine innings, 243 yeah, or 121.5 or in larger samples, just like 39. That's that's never good to see, even if we are talking about like three innings. It kind of reminds you also of like in a weird way, there's like that, you know, like you have to be pretty good to lose 20 games, like all these like kind of weird baseball perversities. Like think of 
what an arm he had that teams would keep being like, well, on average, he would walk 271 men per game. But like, if you if you look at this particular <laughs> slider, which I've isolated from all the rest of them and look at how fast it's going and how much it moves, then I think you can see why we should continue to let him hang out on our spring training facility and give him a shot. You know what, though? I, I really hope it wasn't that self-interested. I really hope that there were people and after he left the Red Sox, uh, the team that had drafted him and, and they tried to get him right for a long time. And then he went to the Cardinals organization, the Rangers organization. He was also actually in the Mets organization Mets. last year. Yeah. I really hope they might say like, you know, there, there's no chance there. There's no chance that this guy's ever going to get it right. But you know what? Let's let's give him a chance yeah. because it, it's just a human thing to do to see if he can get out there and get over this, because this must be such a painful way to, to go through your career and, and just not be able to do this thing that you've been doing since you were seven. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a baseball decision. I mean, it's just like for some of these guys, you know, you, you lose it. And then it's just, if you care about the game and you remember how good these guys were when they were good. And, you know, in some cases, Bard was, you know, just a good pitcher. He wasn't like the sort of thing where like, Mark Pryor, Brandon Webb, or some of these guys that just like abruptly went off the cliff for health reasons. You know, if you remember that, then you can keep dreaming on a a return of it for way longer than, you know, any data would suggest you should. He was a first round draft pick. He was the Red Sox first round pick in 2006. And some of the players in that draft were Evan Longoria, Andrew Miller, Clayton Kershaw, Tim Lincecum, Max Scherzer. I mean, the Ian Kennedy... They're not all still playing or they're not all still playing well, but that was the group that was considered his peers. Not every first round pick works out. And there were a number that year that didn't work out, but still that's a got to be a tough thing to swallow given how good he was obviously was. It's such a weird point to have to make in pieces over and over again, too, because it seems, you know, obvious on its face. But like baseball is, is extremely hard and extremely cruel in the sense that it's just unreasonable, you know, that like it's hard to, to know and to predict. And so it's sort of, you know, you look at like what Daniel Bard's first couple of seasons as a big leaguer look like and you're like, that could go in any number of directions. This is the, the outcome that's at the very bottom of that stack of possibilities. But there's guys that start out like that and become, you know, like mentioned earlier, like Max Scherzer, you know, just guys that are like live arm dudes that like kind of have an idea where it's going. And the team sort of knows what to do with them and sort of doesn't, but like maybe they get an opportunity elsewhere. But this is always a possibility as well. As we get to the end here, and I'm maybe just doing this to piss off that juke dude, Duke. Uh, the juke, juke, Duke. Your, juke of Earl guy. Rate and review, dude. I, I feel like everything is a test and everything, especially now, is kind of an IQ test about just how susceptible you are to like if if somebody puts something that that conflicts with your worldview in front of you and then the president of the United States affixes a clever name before that person it could be crooked Hillary it could be crooked Derek Jeter for all I care but suddenly everything that like you knew about that person is gone because oh he's they've got an adjective before their name imagine a team signs a pitcher and a manager puts that pitcher out in the bottom of the ninth and that pitcher gives up a walk-off home run, a walk-off three-run three, three run home run, or, or as in Sunday evening's game, a walk-off grand yeah. slam on two strikes. And then they call that getting boated. Say the manager then said after the game, you know, a lot of people told me he was crazy. Nobody in the front office liked him, but he came to me with tears in his eyes and said that he needed a job. 
So I did it anyway. Hashtag crazy relief pitcher. And it doesn't loser. Yeah. And it doesn't change the fact that you were the dude who put him on the mound in the first place. Now, I I think I see where you're going with this. (laughs) It's subtle. I know. Yeah. Why are we talking about Omarosa, my dude? It is 2018. How is any of this happening? I didn't talk about her the first time she happened. I never watched that show. I know. I know. (laughs) I don't even know what it was that she, like, is there like a thing that she does when she's not on television? No, she doesn't exist when she's not. It's this weird vampiric, you know, you look in the mirror, you can't see yourself. Well, she only exists when she's on television. She's purely a digital creature. I did want to observe that you had written this this piece about his comments uh, on the wildfires in California which the the his comments not your piece were incoherent and just flew flew in the face of of all reality and the the thing that was interesting to me was this appeared on the concourse section of deadspin which is kind of the catch all for stuff that is not strictly in the the vein of sports. You can tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but no, you're completely right. It's like too weird for sports. is how I think of it. But yet it all seemed like of a piece with everything else that Deadspin does. And I mean, you write like yourself. It's not like you've adopted some Deadspin house style. It's the same. I've been arguing this for my entire freaking career. Like if you can understand why say Noah Syndergaard is to stay with the Mets is a better pitcher than Jason Vargas with his 8.5 ERA, <laughs> yeah. then then you can kind of get the rest of this stuff where, as I said, like somebody comes out and says, well, we, we have fairly large circumstantial proof of collusion with the Russians. And then, well, we call that prosecutor wacky Bob. And now <laughs> it's not true anymore. Are you? It's Jedi mind tricks, you know. Like yeah. these are not the droids you're looking for. If you're susceptible to that, like we're finding out who is, and it turns out to be this huge number of Americans, but it's the same muscle. And I, for the life of me, do not understand why it happens in sports sometimes, but why people are willing to take an ideology and put it in place of critical thinking. The only place that you find this in sports is that every year in the NFL, there are one or two coaches who have like an immobile pocket passer who say, we're going to be running the quarterback option every other play. So you're going to be seeing Tom Brady doing the bootleg pretty much three times a drive. No, no, you're not. Maybe with Cam Newton, maybe that's a good idea, but like, at least he has the mobility to do that. You can't just decide what your philosophy is and then force it on the team instead of deciding what talent you have and then adopting a philosophy. That's the only equivalent I can think of. And people would kill you for it and do kill you for it. But that inflexibility is really, it's weird too, because when you see it in somebody, like when you see it like in an an NFL coach that is insistent on having players play to back to his scheme instead of to their, their own talents, you see like, this is not a good leader. Like this is just bad management, you know, a bad idea, badly executed. And yet like it's somehow different when there's this like magical thinking element involving, you know, that like, well, if you like, if you reduce taxes on rich people, then they'll have more money and then they'll spend it on things. And then you'll have more things and more money too. That like these things, they're not, it's not just that there's not data there. It's that like, at this point, the, these are ideas that are ridiculous on their face. And yet like they last forever because people want them to be true so much. What's weird with Trump is that he doesn't even really seem like those ideas seem more or less by the boards. At this point, it's just this fantasy of dominance and the idea that like, if you say that something that isn't so is so, 
then maybe it is, or it feels like it is. And therefore it's the same thing that like, that's the part with like with Trump making up these stories about like the reason that we have wildfires is that the loony libs are pushing all of our water out to sea and we don't have the water to, to put out the fires. And also there's too many trees who didn't chop these trees down. Does no one but me know that trees are flammable? All this stuff is like, you can trace. And I tried to trace in that, like where the initial dumb idea came from, but then it's like, he just plays a game of telephone with it for three years. And then when it's time to say it in public, everybody's like, what the hell was that, my dude? Like, that is not comprehensible in the least. But it's the sort of thing where, like, I think you just people settle on a lie that asks very little of them and that is more comforting to them than the truth. And then it's like, you know, you repeat it enough times, you repeat it enough times, you somehow can get yourself in a position where even if you don't believe it, you're just like, you're so familiar with it, you can keep making it work. I think it seems clear at this point that, like, politically on both sides of the continuum that that's just not going to fly anymore. I think where we're at, and I will bring it back to a sports analogy again, is that there are a lot of people who don't want to know about the complexity of some of these issues. And they reduce a lot of these things to who's getting ahead on me and why should they get a break? And they don't see that they're getting any kind of a break, at least not right away, or that a rising tide lifts all boats or whatever cliche you want to use. And so for a lot of these things, and and this is why this like nickname stuff I was talking about before, Little Marco and Crazy Amorosa and all that stuff works, is they have kind of an authoritarian fantasy that is utterly impractical, or if it is applied with practicality, leads to an incredibly dark place. But it it would be like saying like, all right, it's the bottom of the ninth. There are no outs. Mookie Betts has just stolen third. What do we do about it? And the answer is we're going to punch him. We're going to just hit him. (laughs) We're going to hit Mookie Betts until he goes back to first base. Just hit him and keep hitting him. And eventually he'll retreat. And people go, oh, okay. That that sounds like a good way to deal with it. Obviously, the, the, the problem is not susceptible to that solution. But if you have to explain all the potential solutions, none of which have great upsides for you, then you've already lost them. Their eyes are glazing over and they are going to go play right. Game Boy. It's a lot easier to understand the whole, like, well, I'm going to punch them than to be like, Rule 117B expressly prohibits the punching of base runners. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I, can't, I can't believe you balked instead of punching him. Why would you yeah. do that? What a dummy. See, that's the that's the Trump I want back is the guy that's on Twitter just criticizing people, like live tweeting episodes of Access Hollywood. <laughs> and like, Marky Post looks terrible. Should appear in Night Court Reunion. <laughs> you know, like that's that's what he should be. She probably doesn't look terrible. I bet Marky Post looks fantastic. But she probably she does. does. But it's her job. But I also feel like that's, you know, that's the type of guy he really is. So the idea that he somehow also gets the nuclear football is something that I choose not to think about. Like I literally think about the Mets instead. That's how bad it is. So, David, just to end on a high note, yes. since we're already, as usual, well into overtime here, give me, as we head down the stretch here in baseball, give me one thing you're enjoying or, or looking forward to, and we'll go out on that note. I mean, I wish I was enjoying DeGrom more. I really like the Jose Ramirez season. I'm having a, a great deal of fun watching him. I'm, I'm enjoying the A's right now. Like, I don't know how sustainable any of that is. I saw a dude that I have authentically never heard of in my life make one of the best outfield <laughs> throws that I've ever seen in a major league game for the A's. Did you see that? Yes, that would be Ramon Loreno. Sure, of course. <laughs> I don't think he's in the baseball prospectus book, dude. Like, I don't think that, I don't know who that guy is. And it was, a you know, a fantastic play all around. But like, 
yeah, in terms of individual performances, I like that Ramirez is doing something that I've authentically never seen before, which is, I don't know if anybody has seen it before. He's leading the American League in home runs and stolen bases at the same time. That's awesome. It's super awesome. I mean, it would be cooler if it was like still a, a fun era where guys stole bases. I mean, he's got like 26 or 27 steals, which is a lot, but it's like also, you know, still major league baseball. Like somebody should have 50, right? You know, it reminds me a little bit, and this is one of the great seasons of all time. This was 95. In a shortened season, no less, Albert Bell rolled up both 50 doubles and 50 home runs. I don't think anyone had done it before. I don't think anyone's done it since. But the Cleveland Indianness of it all, and I think this is probably going to be the case with Ramirez as well, is that nothing comes of it. It's just something cool for us to look at. Which is, you know, that's a that's a baseball experience too. You know, like they don't all have to, it's not like it ends with confetti and raising a flag every year. Sometimes you just get something, you know, you get like Larry Walker's strike shortened season or something like that, where you just, you're like, oh, I remember that. That was cool. It's not everything, but it's not nothing either. Right. But this is why the natural sucks <laughs> yes. because, you know, that. <laughs> He really should, just as in the book, strike out. That would be truer to life. I was talking to some coworkers about that recently. And some of them, I read the book when I was in like eighth or ninth grade and it blew my mind. Like, I think it was at the time, I thought it was like the best thing I'd ever read. And I'd seen the movie and thought the movie was kind of pokey and cheesy because it ends in a completely different way. So I was gobsmacked by the end of it. But I haven't read the book since. (laughs) I had some coworkers that read it recently and they were just like, no, it's like dour. It's super dour. It's, I think Bill James summed it up as a story about how no one ever learns anything. And I, <laughs> I think it's fair, but we'll always have Randy Newman's score, yep. which combines the best of Randy Newman and Aaron Copeland and influences like that. And you can still play that. Even if you hate the movie, you still get that great. Yep. So that holds up. Even if, uh, yeah, I encourage you to read the book instead. Listen to the music while you read the book. Maybe, maybe that works. Oh, you could play that music while he strikes out. That would be the only. Maybe we just learned something. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. But the time will be the test of that. David, as always, it's been far too long. Thank you very much. I look forward to next time. Yeah, man, me too. I will talk to you sooner. By that insistent thought that you can't dismiss, we've come to the end of another episode. You can follow David Roth on Twitter at David underscore J underscore Roth. I don't even know what the J stands for. As for me, you can follow me at Go Stephen Goldman. Why Go Stephen Goldman? Because the cat said, it's either you or me, buddy, and I think we both know how that's going to work out. So you might as well go. You can also write us, by which I mean me, at infiniteinning at gmail.com. I do respond at the best possible speed that I can muster. And there's a Facebook group. Go to Facebook, search Infinite Inning Knock, I'll let you in. A splendid time is guaranteed for all. And if you have a spare moment, please go to Apple iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. It does help bring the show to the top of the listings and then more people can find it 
and experience our shared joy and pain, but mostly joy, I hope. We have a sponsor now, but nevertheless, this episode is brought to you by the number 48. Our producer is Fonsible Blatant. Our theme song, which you have been listening to throughout the episode, but in fact are not listening to now, this is the great Randy Newman, was a co-composition of myself and Dr. Rick Mooring, and we'll just leave it at that and say that if the Mets don't revoke my security clearance, I'll be back next week with more tales and discussion from inside the infinite inning. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.